Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no definitive knowledge on the topics I talk about. Be skeptical and look into things for yourself to confirm the veracity. Please also be advised that I do swear, and I do not bleep it out, so listener discretion is advised. I'm Ruby, and this is episode 64 of Living Through Extinction, a short, to-the-point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as people can be better for future generations. I want to start by saying thank you to the Manitoba Money Shot podcast for featuring Living Through Extinction as one of the Friday Foreplay Manitoba Gold episodes. I said that right, right? Friday Foreplay Manitoba Gold episodes. Thank you, Ronald, for saying such nice things about me. I really don't deserve it, and you're really, really sweet. Sometimes I get random messages of support from fellow podcasters whom I look up to, and while I don't feel like I deserve the nice things they say about me, I appreciate it on a level that I can't even put into words. Y'all actually choke me up sometimes, and y'all always keep me encouraged to keep going, even when I feel like I'm fucking it all up. I think I've reached a point where I've just accepted that there will always be episodes I'll be unhappy with. Period. But there will also be segments and episodes that I'm proud of and glad that I put out into the world. If I let the ones I'm disappointed in stop me, then that'll also stop the good ones, right? So I just have to accept the shitty and move on, hoping that the next one will be better. The point is, thank you so very much to everyone who has ever sent me a message of support, who has ever said something nice about me or the show. Thank you. You have my heart. Oh, and also thank you so very much to those who entered the contest. I was so afraid that no one would enter and was very pleasantly surprised that I actually ended up with some entries. So thank you. And the winner has officially been announced and posted on social medias and they have also been contacted. Okay, enough rambling. Today I will be talking about the Cottingly Fairies, smart window technologies, and the true American hero, Senator Megan Hunt. Being July, this episode will have part one of two about summer protections. Today, I talk about sun protection. If you have joined me before, then thank you so very much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. The Cottingly Fairies. I have a hard time saying Cottingly, so this segment should be fun. The Cottingly Fairies are a popular discussion among skeptics. They fooled so many people for so long, and the fooled included experts and people in high regard. In truth, those who defended the images as real did so with the use of fallacy after fallacy. Remember, if something is really true, then one should be able to make a case for it without making fallacious statements. I'm sure there is someone listening who doesn't know this little bit of skeptical history, so let's back up to the beginning. Elsie Wright and Frances Griffith were cousins. They lived in the same home in Cottingley, which was near Bradford in England in 1917. There was a nearby stream called Cottingley Beck, where the 16-year-old and 9-year-old would play. They were not supposed to play by the stream, so when they would come home wet and muddy and get into trouble, they would defend themselves by saying they were just going there to visit the fairies. Of course, nobody believed them. 
Elsie's dad was an amateur photographer and had his own darkroom, and Elsie, by 16, had learned a lot about photographic skills herself. So she borrowed her dad's camera one day and took off with Francis. They came back and developed the film, and there were two pictures. One was of a fairy posing with Francis, and the other was a picture of Elsie with a gnome. There it was, their evidence. Elsie's father didn't buy into it right away. He was immediately suspicious, as he knew she had already shown some talent in the art of retouching photographs in the past. He also guessed that they probably used cutout figures and posed them to create the pictures. While he was correct, this was not proven to be true for a ridiculously long time. Despite her father's doubts, Elsie's mother absolutely believed the pictures were legit. She brought them with her one day to a spiritualism lecture and showed them to the speaker there. The speaker also believed the images to be of real live fairies and contacted Edward Gardner, the leader of the Theosophical Movement at the time. He in turn contacted Harold Snelling to examine them. Everyone along the line believed they were looking at the first true evidence of fairy life. The images became a regular attraction at spiritual events and went through the British spiritualist community, which a famous man named Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was often involved in. That's how he first came to learn about the fairy photographs himself, and he was one of the most fervent believers and defenders. I think it's fair to say he was downright passionate about it. He desperately wanted the pictures to be real. He wanted fairies to be real. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle reached out to Elsie and Francis and asked them for more pictures. They got back to him with three more, one of Francis with a leaping fairy and one of a fairy offering a posy to Elsie. And then one of fairies supposedly bathing in the sun. He then wrote an article that was published in the Strand magazine defending the authenticity of all the images. And this is how the Cottingley fairies started to become known across the nation and beyond. Edward Gardner, the spiritualist leader, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes books, reached out to Kodak, thinking this would be the final piece they needed for absolute confirmation. When you read about this in some places, it will say that Kodak verified the photographs and just leave it at that. But actually, they hedged their bets a bit on this one. The Kodak professionals concurred that they were legitimate photographs of what was in front of the camera but they would go no further. They refused to say that the photographs were of real live fairies. Gardner didn't like this response one bit and decided that there had to be a conspiracy and that the people at the Kodak company were all in on it. Some things never change, right? Over 100 years later, and people trying to defend woo and bullshit do the same thing when all the major groups that know better tell them they are wrong. Conspiracy theory. I mean, it has to be a conspiracy, right? They couldn't possibly be incorrect about something. Fucking arrogance. When photographic expert Harold Snelling confirmed the pictures as real photographs, he worded it similarly as, quote, authentic images of what was in front of the camera. He was also not willing to go so far as to say this was evidence of fairies. Doyle continued to defend the photographs with the argument that Kodak had confirmed the legitimacy of them, which they didn't actually do in the way that he represented. As I said, they only confirmed that the photographs themselves had not been manipulated. But even if it had been true, this is an appeal to authority fallacy. 
Just because you found an expert that says the pictures are real pictures does not prove fairies exist. Doyle also made appeal to ignorance claims. They were just children. They could not possibly have the knowledge and the skills required to pull off such a hoax. Hence, it has to be real. That's the appeal to ignorance fallacy. And then people believed him because he wrote books about the greatest detective in the world. He had to be legit. I believe that would be the argument from credulity fallacy? Let me know if I got that one wrong. There were skeptics back then too, ruining the fun for psychics and spiritualists everywhere. The claim from skeptics at the time was that the images looked like nothing more than bits of paper, and some pointed out that the fairy in the fourth photograph appeared to be dressed in the latest French fashion. Just like today, however, nobody wanted to listen to the skeptics, to those who were being rational. They just wanted to believe so badly that they blocked out any reason on the matter. And then in 1978, James Randi, my favorite debunker, got involved. To hear more about him, please consider listening to episodes 57 and 58. In his investigation, he actually found the book the fairies appear to come from. Leave it to Randy, am I right? Fucking hero, this guy. The fairy poses and clothing all matched images in the 1914 book called Princess Mary's Gift. Oh, sorry, it was called Princess Mary's Gift Book. Of course, he turned out to be right. Let's face it, Randy almost always turned out to be right. In 1981, Elsie Wright confirmed it. She was the one who had sketched the images in the photographs, and she had copied them from this very book, which she had a copy of at the time of the fraud. She then added the wings, and she and her cousin used hat pins to hold them in position. She claims that they never in a million years expected that they would actually fool everyone. What started out as a fun game got very serious, and they didn't feel like they could admit it had been a hoax anymore. Too many important people had been fooled. They thought that they would be in really big trouble. So they kept up the ruse, even making more of the fraudulent photographs at Doyle's request. Today, anyone can look up the images and see them for themselves. What's really wild is that in the image of the gnome, the hat pin holding it up in a standing position can actually be clearly seen. Doyle wanted to believe the fairies were real so bad that he interpreted the pinhead as a creature's belly button, leading him to declare that we now know fairies give birth just like humans. Wow. <laughs> I know someone out there is face palming at that little tidbit. A critical thinker he was not. Imagine if he had lived today. He would be the famous person the anti-vaxxers are quoting, saying that if he believes it, it must be true. Blah! While I would like to think that something like this would never fool anyone today, I also once thought that about propaganda, and look at how wrong I was there. There are always people willing to believe with little to no evidence, no matter how fragile that little evidence might be. They are just so desperate to believe that they're easily fooled. And that's kind of sad. So the moral of the story today is don't be like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Be skeptical, damn it. There are some pretty wild, smart window technologies coming around the bend. Windows are the least efficient part of most buildings. It's where up to 60% of energy loss can occur. When it's hot out, 
The windows are heated from the outside, and they radiate that heat energy into the building, heating up the inside. When it's cold out, the windows are warmed from the inside, and that heat energy is radiated outside. This is a natural process called radiative cooling, and it really is working against us. What the new smart windows all seem to have in common is they are making use of materials that automatically turn radiative cooling on or off based on temperature alone. Colleagues at Nanyang Technology University in Singapore have come up with one. They added a thin layer of vanadium. Vanadium, I suck at these words, vanadium dioxide to one side of the glass. This particular compound changes from an insulator to a conductor at around 68 degrees Celsius. Now 68, that's a bit too hot. That's too high for these purposes. So the material was tweaked by adding tungsten to the vanadium, vanadium dioxide, sorry, to lower the transition temperature to 28 degrees Celsius. Between the tungsten-vanadium dioxide combination and the glass is a layer of transparent plastic called polymethylmethacrylate, which helps to enhance the insulating properties when needed. This method is expected to be not just cost-effective, but also scalable, which is ideal. And of course, the best part is once it's in place, there's no electricity. No turning anything on or off. It'll just do its natural thing. This sounds great, but we should all be aware that it's still early on and there are still tweaks to be made. But in this case, the proof of concept has absolutely been established. Researchers at the University of Pittsburgh have come up with a prototype called Smart Glazing Technology. The claims are that this could reduce energy usage of a building by up to a third. The amazing thing about this one is it's something that can coat existing windows rather than having to completely replace windows in order to benefit from it. That's automatically going to make it easier and more affordable for the average person. This system has been described as efficient and aesthetically pleasing, and it's the only one I came across that would not require complete window replacement. It's partially made up of phase change materials, which can be switched to turn previously absorbed wavelengths away. The atomic structure actually switches from a structure that reflects heat to one that absorbs heat and back again. When adjusted, the glaze switches from an amorphous arrangement of atoms to a crystalline arrangement of atoms. Crystalline arrangements are more tightly bunched together, which causes the reflection rather than the absorption. They are so tightly bunched together that the wavelengths can't get through. The most interesting thing about this smart window version is that it is extremely adjustable. It didn't explain how, but I presume there would be like knobs or something but it can be fine-tuned by having the window partially absorbing and partially reflecting. For example, the window can be said to have 30% of the film reflecting while 70% of the film is absorbing. This would allow for much better control in seasons such as spring and fall. And this last one I'm going to tell you about has actually reached the point of being published. The research can be found in the journal ACS Photonics. Three researchers used a charcogenide-based material, which, like the previous mentioned materials, changes its phase in response to heat. In cold weather, it will absorb the sun and emit warmth into the room. In hot weather, it can be switched to reflect the heat back outside instead. Once installed, they claim that the same amount of visible light will come through the window no matter which state you have your windows in. Just the heat is supposed to be stopped in its tracks.
Windows fitted with this glass are estimated to save 20 to 30% on energy use a year when compared with traditional double pane windows. It's nice to see new window ideas coming down the line, but these three in particular show some real promise. Heating and cooling needs use an unbelievable amount of energy, as I discussed in episodes 54 and 55. Ideas like these, where the use of energy for internal temperature controls is greatly reduced or removed altogether, could make a huge difference in our heating and cooling usage and emissions. It seemed appropriate to talk about sun and bug stuff in July or August, so July it will be. This episode is Summer Protections, Part 1, Protection from the Sun. There are definitely options if we want to reduce environmental impacts but still keep ourselves safe. We can seek treed or otherwise sheltered areas. We can carry an umbrella with us. Wide-brim summer hats make it possible to not have to use as much sunscreen on our faces. We can cover our arms and legs in light reflective clothing. Or if one can afford it, they can wear UV protective clothing, allowing for a much reduced use of sunscreen on the arms and legs. But a lot of these things just aren't always an option. There's not always a place in the shaded area available. Not everyone can afford an umbrella or a nice sun hat or UV protection clothing. We can't just stop using sunscreen altogether. We need it. As much as the sun is required for us to live, it can also kick our asses in the most brutal ways. Our brains get fried from heat stroke. Our skin burns and blisters and peels from direct rays. Our skin is affected on a cellular level, resulting in increased chances of cancer. We can't get rid of sunscreen. But we should know what our options are and what the differences are between those options in order to make what we perceive to be the best decision for ourselves and our surroundings. There are two types of sunscreen on the market, and they work in very different ways. Those types are chemical sunscreen and mineral sunscreen. Chemical sunscreen absorbs UV rays rather than allowing your skin to take them in. Mineral sunscreen contains zinc oxide and or titanium dioxide, which are white in color, and so of course reflect the rays from the sun away before it can be absorbed. So one absorbs it for us and the other reflects it away from us. The most common active ingredient in chemical sunscreens is oxybenzone, which has a whole assortment of problems with it that affect a whole range of organisms. For coral, it accumulates in their tissue, induces bleaching, damages the DNA, and deforms and ultimately kills them. To mussels, it can induce defects in their young. For sea urchins, it can damage their immune and reproductive systems and deform their young. In fish, it can decrease fertility and reproduction and cause female characteristics to form in male fish. For dolphins, it accumulates in their tissues and can be transferred to their young. Green algae can be affected. It can impair their growth and photosynthesis. And then there's people. It's been found in the urine and breast milk of regular users. Oxybenzone is also a known endocrine disruptor in both humans and wildlife. And that's just one of the many chemicals found in chemical sunscreen. I have a list of nine others here, but probably can't pronounce half of them, so I'll try to remember to make a post for the social medias with the list so that if you want more information on these other chemical ingredients, you can look into them. Mineral sunscreens are not toxic to humans, and they are much less toxic to the environment than the chemical ones. Many companies are making the switch and citing it as for the environment. They even mark these ones as environmentally friendly or reef safe versions, but they aren't really. I mean, 
They are a lot more environmentally friendly than the chemical versions, but they still have major issues with them. They can actually be toxic to corals, fish, and other organisms living and feeding in and around the coral reefs. Coral reefs come up in topics again and again on this show because of how important they are to this planet and how many of the things I talk about do them harm. One of the biggest problems with these zinc and titanium dioxide creams is that they break down into the tiniest particles. I'm talking 35 nanometers in diameter. And where does it all go when we're done with it? Down the drain in the shower, or when we wash our hands, or directly into the waterways as we swim. These teeniest, tiniest bits are in our lakes, rivers, and oceans. 35 nanometers is so small that it can interact with the cells of the organisms it comes in contact with. It does damage to the actual cellular structures of the corals and their symbiotic algae. Again, we can't escape the need for sunscreen, but we can look for ways to reduce the impact. Finish all of a purchased product before discarding the container, for one thing. Avoid spray-on versions altogether. They are the worst of the sunblocks for the environment because they let so much of their contents wisp away into the atmosphere as opposed to landing on our skin. And they are also the worst for our health because we inhale more of these during application than any other form of sun protection. Look for packaging that's reusable and or recyclable. Look for packaging with less plastic in their packaging overall. Understand that organic doesn't mean safe. Many of the plant-based oils that are used are toxic to living organisms. One can look up the impacts by researching the plants on the ingredient list of their all-natural sunblock. Look for products marked marine safe. They'll be skeptical of and investigate the claims. And also, they may cost more, putting them out of the running for a lot of people. Let's face it, if we want everyone to do the right thing, it has to be affordable to everyone. It may be more difficult, but there are options out there if one can afford them. Two examples are Raw Love Sunscreen, which uses 100% plant-based ingredients which are safe for both humans and the environment, and Raw Element Sunscreen, which has non-toxic plant oils, and the packaging is a recyclable, reusable tin, which is completely plastic-free. There will be an update on this topic for next summer, as it's a part of a National Academy of Sciences study reviewing environmental impacts of sunscreen ingredients, which is going to be finished this year. The data should be available by summer 2023 for sure. There is also a team at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Florida, which is developing a sunscreen called Shinerin or Shinerin. Fuck these names, man. They're always so cheesy. Anyway... Shinerin, or Shinerin, is a natural UV-absorbing ingredient that's harvested from algae. This one I actually can't wait to read the results of. And then there are other researchers working on other solutions, so this may just be an area where we need to give it a bit of time. I'll try to remember to do a follow-up on this topic around this time next year. I want to talk about Nebraska Senator Megan Hunt. She is the hero we need right now. We desperately need more like her. On April 6th, there was an anti-abortion bill called LB 933 being debated in her state, and it was a sneaky one. Republicans tried to deny the fact that it contained very disturbing components to it. This bill was stopped, but only because someone took the time to make sure they knew what was in it. It was Senator Megan Hunt who made sure to read every word of that tricky bill. 
And then she stood up and spoke up and made sure everyone there that day knew exactly what it was. She calls Bill LB-933 anti-choice, anti-woman, anti-family, and anti-science. And I couldn't agree with her more. My family wouldn't exist today if I hadn't had an abortion 30 years ago. She explains how this is a forced birth bill that includes instances of rape, incest, and child abuse, and makes no exceptions for the life of mothers, regardless of their age. Senator Flood left the floor, having been all, tut, tut, don't overreact. He stated that this law would not go into immediate effect if Roe was overturned. He also stated that it wouldn't affect women with ectopic pregnancies. He stood there, and he lied. And I'm not sure if it was him, but someone on that side said they could always pass it now as it is and fix it later. More pandering, more distraction. Just trying to get it pushed through any way they can, hoping nobody will look at it too closely. And to anyone who just scans the bill to make sure the parts they want are in there, how would they know that they're being manipulated and lied to? They knew because Megan Hunt did read every word and was able to point out the blatant, purposeful lies made by the person before her. Bills are written out in their entirety for everyone to see, but in many bills they make them dozens of pages long to discourage detailed reading of everything they involve. They hide something horrible on line 32 of page 45. The initial health care bill that Trump and his people tried to get passed had a hidden line in it about further tax breaks for the rich. We only ever see that kind of deceit from one side down there, by the way, and that's the Republican side. They're just so severely dishonest. Anyway, this fucking hero pointed out the lies and showed the people exactly where in this bill being introduced it states the things that Senator Flood claimed were not in there. She is holding the bill in her hands at one point and actually says, right here on page three, words matter, colleagues. But the thing is, they don't to them anymore. They just want to see what they can get away with. So Megan Hunt pointed out where on page three it shows that doctors can be charged with a felony for providing IVF services, plan B, and helping women with ectopic pregnancies. 20 years in jail for helping a woman have a child through IVF. 20 years in jail for saving the life of a woman with an ectopic pregnancy. This shit is getting very close to being more barbaric than the shit that we see and condemn in the Middle East people. She also pointed out the other lie right there on line 16 for all to see. LB 933 will go into effect immediately if the U.S. overrules in whole or in part Roe versus Wade. She goes on to point out that the introducer of this horrific bill has also made efforts to reduce access to contraception and to ban sex education. To want abortion banned and to throw birth control and sex education out the window. Well, that's a fucking baby cult. They want their girls to remain ignorant and to not have access to protect themselves so that more and more will have little babies to indoctrinate and serve. That's basically what it is. These women are basically slaves, birthing future slaves. I am going to play some audio for you here. This is just a clip of the heroism she showed that day. If you're hearing about her for the first time right now, look into her. She's out there fighting for true democracy. If you live in Nebraska, vote for her. She's fighting for you. I call this audio clip, You Chose the Wrong Bill. That's not true either. That's totally wrong. 
In the bill on page three, words matter, colleagues. This bill bans IVF, it bans Plan B, it plans, it, it prevents helping women who have ectopic pregnancies. And Senator Flood was wrong about the other thing he said too. On page three, line 16, the United States Supreme Court overrules in whole or in part Roe versus Wade. Proponents of this bill have no shame left. I will cherish the time that I have worked here forever, but when I am term limited, I will probably not talk to most of you ever again. That's just reality. You're not my friends, you're my coworkers. If you think my 11-year-old should be forced to give birth, you are not my friend. This isn't about the babies. This is about the words of this bill. And you chose the wrong bill. You had two other abortion restrictive bills that you could have put through and you chose the wrong bill. The national press is lit up about how Nebraska wants to ban IVF and ban Plan B and emergency contraception. It's lit up about how this bill prevents ectopic pregnancies for women, the people with ectopic pregnancies from getting health care. Let me explain to you how it's going to go down if this bill moves forward today to select file. If this moves forward, the first thing that will happen is I'll open on a motion to indefinitely postpone the election law bill that's coming up next. If this bill moves, colleagues, that bill doesn't move. And we'll be here until midnight or until there's a motion to adjourn, and we'll pick it up again tomorrow. The language is clear. No doctor in the state of Nebraska will perform IVF if this bill passes. In every abortion debate, we say that it's the patient's health, not politics, that should guide every medical decision. And you have no defense on IVF. You would need an amendment to fix it, and you've messed up so bad, you're never going to get an amendment. There is 0% chance on select or final that LB 933 is going to be amended. So if you're out here making yourself feel better, saying, I will vote for it on general, and we will fix it, no, we won't. What you're going to do is contribute to wasting more time. There is no scenario where this will be amended. Because I got to it first. You guys pulled the wrong bill. If this bill advances, IPP motions are going on the bills of every proponent. Because to me, yeah, this is personal. I am not a person who can say, if you think my 11-year-old should be forced to give birth, that we can still be friends. I don't understand a person who can say something like that. Maybe it's a person who can't give birth. Maybe it's a person who's never been raped. Someone who doesn't have a clue what it is to go through it. One minute. In life, sometimes we go through things where we have to draw a boundary. It is healthy for me as a mother, as a rape survivor, to draw a boundary and say, if you think that my child should be forced to give birth, you are not my friend. 
And if I go to the pearly gates and meet your God someday, which sounds great, I hope I do, I don't think I'm going to get in any trouble for killing all of your bills who vote for this. I don't think your God's going to have any problem with that. And I don't think I'm going to see any of you there either. Thank you, Mr. President. All right. I have no idea how any of that turned out. I'll find out when I do the editing, but I really hope it came through because, oh my God, she's amazing. The United States is under attack by Christian extremists, and it needs as many Megan Hunts fighting for what's right as it can get its hands on right now. How much do you want to bet that when the Republicans regain control, she and heroes like her will be prosecuted as witches within just a few years? That's where they're fucking headed. If you don't want abortion, the reasonable next step is to increase sex education and access to protection. But they just aren't reasonable anymore. They are the U.S. version of the Taliban. It's really fucking scary. Thank goodness there are still decent people like Megan Hunt trying to fight for people's rights. Watch her. Listen to her. Support her. Vote for her and people like her. They are the ones who just might be able to save that country if given the chance. All right, I'm done for today. Thank you so much for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily. I'm going in for a minor surgery at the end of this month, but I'm hopeful that it won't interrupt my release schedule at all, so there should still be two episodes coming out in August, as well as one more this month. Having said everything I have to say today, I'd like to express my gratitude to the following people. Jason Martin for helping me get started on this project more than two years ago. I wouldn't be doing this right now if not for him. Kathy Rayner for her musical contribution on the violin. Paul Palmer for his musical contribution on the guitar. He can be found at Winnipeg Suitcase Drummer on Instagram or playing live with Toad Turner. Dustin Harder for composing and recording the intro and outro for the show. You can find him on Facebook at Toad Turner The Chronicles, Instagram at Prairie Soul Music, or see him playing live with Toad Turner. And finally, thank you to my family who puts up with me hiding in my bedroom, reading articles and making notes for hours at a time so that I can actually do this podcast thing, because I really don't want to stop. I hope you will choose to join me again in two weeks for episode 65 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoy Living Through Extinction and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe and rate and to comment and like positive comments on your favorite podcast player, or you can help out by following, liking, and sharing on all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There is also a Patreon at patreon.com slash livingthroughextinction where one can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more, as well as help me to plant some trees. If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, please email them to livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or message me through one of the social medias. 